0: Sort of searching for the words this morning as we begin to just reflect on the fact that in so many ways this is not us. Okay, this is not what we do normally. This is not our arrangement. We're not usually a pew apart and wearing masks and one smaller assembly on Sunday morning and just one division of Bible class on Sunday night and no midweek service. We're we're more than this. We're more than this number. It's gathered in this room. We're more than the events that we have scheduled for any calendar week uh, since March. But in another sense, friends, this is exactly who we are, isn't it? That we are God's people and we do what God would desire regardless of what man would say and that that we have been able through all of this to worship in spirit and in truth and to be an influence in our communities and to continue to study the Bible. So it is, I think, every, every week that we gather, every day that we get up, at least for me, it's that constant struggle to accept that this is who we are in reality, but it doesn't feel like it's enough. So I would just, this morning, it's not the purpose of the lesson, I just, I just feel like it needs to be reiterated, and we need to be reminded that if we're struggling spiritually because of the occasions of our world, reach out to someone, acknowledge that, pray to God, invest your life and your heart into the Word of God and be a better student that your faith might increase. I know there are people listening this morning to the live stream that would love to be here. Perhaps because they're not, they're struggling and hurting. Maybe you're here but frustrated for the way that you have to come in the building or the distance that we have to keep or the lack of consistency with what we've been doing for year after year after year in, in, in moments and times like these. Please realize that we are still a family and that God still cares and, and, and I think the greatest fear that we have on the other side of all of this is that someone will lose their faith because of a lack of connection to the Lord's people. And that wouldn't be the greatest tragedy of all, wouldn't it? If anyone fell away from the Lord during this time. And so I hope that, I hope that we, we don't just put on a face or a mask and act like everything's okay and this is normal. It's not. And our being able to admit that and to be real with one another and confess our struggles Maybe the only thing that gets us through with the faith that we need. That's lesson number one. Now we'll go to lesson number two. Have you ever wanted to be invincible? Have you ever felt indestructible? You know, I think that's one of the reasons why superheroes appeal to the mindset of young people and maybe even older people at times. But everybody wants to be able to to, to conquer the world, to, to do it all and not get tired, not get weary, not hurt. I believe that all of us to an extent ha- have this dream that that, that, we could, that we could fly or crash through a, a, a brick wall and come out on the other side or, or land on our feet and to know that we have, we have done more and, and been greater and gone further than maybe others in, in the past. We all want to feel and to be undefeated, perpetually well, never get old. You know, I was looking for an illustration, and I'm going to share one in a moment from, from, a, from ancient literature. But as I was thinking about what to say and, and got the lesson all together, I opened up my news feed this morning, and there was a, a news story there about a man breaking the world's record for oldest skydiver. Just this past week, 103 years old. you know where he did it? Just outside of San Marcos. 103 years old. That's almost the definition of invincible, isn't it? Purposely jump out of an airplane at 103? But we all know that while it did end well, it could have ended tragically because the man who jumped out, like the rest of us, is not indestructible. We have our limits. We have our frailties and we have... Or in- inconsistencies and shortcomings in Greek mythology. The story of Achilles is one of those that speaks the experience of in- in- experience of indestructibility. It was said that that his mother wanted him to be indestructible, and so she took him down to the river that held magical pro- properties, indestructible properties, and she dipped him in, believing that if she dipped him in that river, that he would grow to be indestructible. You know, and according to the story, she was right every inch of his body that was covered in that water was indestructible. The problem was she was holding him by his heel, which did not get submerged into the water. And so we've all heard the the phrase before Achilles' heel. It's because it was the only vulnerable part of his body. And the story goes that his death was because he was struck with an arrow in his heel. The one part of him that was indestructible. What if I told you this morning that Christian has greater assurance and security in times of struggle and difficulty than the mythical Achilles. That that we have greater properties of of steadfastness and and indestructibility than a 103-year-old man who jumps out of an airplane or Superman or Thor or Iron Man. That we truly can be people who don't fall or fail, that we can be undefeated, that we'll never grow old. Now, before anyone decides to go parachuting without a parachute, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 7 this morning, but we need to we need to set it in, in context. And so let's turn over there if you have your Bibles, and uh, we'll look at those first three verses this morning together. And I'll give a little more ex- explanation in just a moment about why we're not looking at the whole chapter this morning. Before we do that, though, I think there, there needs to be at least a, a moment of discussion relative to our theme for the month. You know, we're, we're trying to get back on track with covering those and, and emphasizing those in our sermons, and we are, we are talking about this month exaltation through persecution, particularly lessons from the book of Revelation now understand that the idea of exaltation and persecution go hand in hand all throughout the New Testament. It was James who said that our faith is made perfect when we are tried, James 1 verses 2 through 5. It was Peter who said in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 through 9 that faith that's tried in the fire comes out on the other side as precious. And so it's, it's not, while the world may not see it that way, for the, for the Christian, for the Bible student... It should be easily connected in our minds that persecution and trials and difficulty leads to perfection, and perfection equals exaltation. Therefore, there is a way to be exalted in the midst of persecution. We have to admit that. In fact, it's almost as if God understood that it would be a prerequisite to faithfulness that we be persecuted. Didn't he tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12 that all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution? So even if it's not a prerequisite for maturity in Christ, it is a a, a natural and unavoidable consequence of being a Christian. And so if you and I are ever going to be exalted in this life or in the next life, it's going to be partly as a result of the things that we face that we don't like. That needs to be understood throughout the duration of this month, that we keep that in mind, that when we suffer, when we're persecuted, it's not an enigma, it's not not an aberration, it is part of the life that we live. Number two, just observation based on our theme, let's not confuse dissatisfaction, infringement, or disagreement with persecution. Okay? I think that's... Pretty important for now. We planned this series of sermons and this theme back in around November or so of last year, finalized it all. And so I had no way of knowing that putting persecution in July would be the time that we would be forced to wear masks, okay? Where we would be told to social distance, where, where we would be isolated from one another, where we would have our liberties and rights questioned and even supplanted for a time for whatever reason and I won't go into that this morning I didn't know that that's where we would be and so it might be easy in our minds to say you're right Wayne we're persecuted because look at our world today I might refer you to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4 that we've not yet resisted unto blood that the things that we don't like about our world doesn't necessarily mean we're being persecuted and by the way it's not only Christians that are being asked to wear masks it's not only worship assemblies that are asked to distance it's not only churches that are asked to comply with ordinances that try to keep people safe let's not make persecution where it's not because if it's coming it'll be worse than this friends it won't look like this you know sometimes we've debated through this time said i wouldn't do this but i'll do it we've debated through this time is this is this persecution against religion against morality against what's right are they trying to shut down churches Friends, the first century didn't have to wonder if they were being persecuted when they were being persecuted. They didn't have to have a discussion and try to figure it out. They knew when Nero came, Nero hated them. They knew when Domitian rose up that Domitian was going to kill them. If we have to question whether or not what's going on in our world is a persecuted matter, it's probably not. And so let's be careful that we don't read too much into the things of the world to say, see, it's here, what we've all feared. It may be. And it may not turn around from here, okay? It it may not. We may be down a path and going toward a place where Christians have to stand even stronger than they have in the past. And let's be ready for that. But let's not jump the gun. Already predetermine what's going to happen as a result of all of this. I say that to caution us because I don't want us to go through this month of July as we talk about persecution and equate it with immediately what's going on right now. If we do, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. We're missing the point and the intensity of this book. Now, for our text in Revelation chapter 7, I told you I'd explain in just a moment why we're not looking at the totality of the chapter. I intended to look at it. I wrestled this week in particular with this sermon almost every day debating on what to cover and what not to cover, how to arrange it and then change it back around and which verses to leave out and which questions not to answer. Because in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of stuff. Revelation 7 is one of those chapters that I would assume we don't preach very much. In fact, it's the reason that I chose it. You know, we hear a lot about the seven churches, don't we? We've studied those our whole life. We've studied about about the the, the last two chapters and and eternity and what heaven's going to look like. We don't spend a lot of time in sermon form in the middle of the book. And I wanted to do that in this series for the purpose of simply looking at things we don't generally look at and talk about. But in doing so, it puts the preacher in a difficult spot. I can't cover all this. What I finally came to realize is the problem is it's two different sermons. That's an easy way out, by the way, for the preacher. It's two different sermons. So we'll look at at the first part of the chapter this week, and then in a couple of weeks we'll come back and look at the second part of the chapter. And we'll make the connection as we flow through the text because it is a continuous story, but chapter 7 are two different divisions. What we find in chapter 7 is the seal of security. This indestructible property, this idea that we can't lose, that we won't lose, that we will win, that victory is guaranteed, that we are more indestructible than anything that that, that the, the world of fiction could ever throw at us. Anything our imagination could ever come up with that we absolutely have a promise of security even and especially in in, in a time, a month of time of persecution and difficulty. There are actually four things going on in this chapter. This morning we will look at three of those things. They are found in the first eight verses, particularly in the first three verses, uh, but we'll try to cover all... First eight verses in our thoughts. Number one, in our text, there is a holding. Okay, there is a holding. Let's go to let's go to chapter seven and look at verse number one. He says, After this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, when you read that verse, there's an automatic understanding that this is not the beginning of the story, right? In fact, if you read all the way through chapter 7, you're going to be well aware of the fact that it's not the end of the story either. So our chapter segmented out is not the beginning or the end, it's not the introduction, nor is the conclusion. So I have to understand a little bit about the book to be able to appreciate what's going in. In fact, chapter 7 is an interlude, it's a sidebar. It's not even a continuation of the story that, was, that ended in chapter 6 and it picks back up in chapter 8. It's, it's a, it's a parenthesis. Now there's a purpose for it, which is why we're studying it. But it's segmented off. You see, the whole of Revelation, and I think that we know this, but the whole of Revelation, the book of Revelation, is about how God will vindicate His people. If you believe, and I do, that that it's about Rome and its persecution on the early church, that God's telling his people that's not going to last. One day it's going to come to an end, and I will vindicate you. I will unleash my wrath. I will bring Rome down, and I will rescue the church. I believe that's the whole whole purpose of the book. And that book, that purpose, that plan, when you get to chapter 5 in particular, is sealed up in a scroll. The power and plan of God. Look, look back at chapter 5 and look at verse number 1. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. That's not the book of life. That's not the, that's not the Bible that's sealed up. That, that's not the, the book of judgment. I believe it's the book, the, the contents and the fulfillment of the book of Revelation. How is God going to rescue the church? How is he going to vindicate his people? How is he going to bring Rome down? Well, the plan is all nicely rolled up and sealed up inside this book. But then notice. And I saw a strong angel, verse 2 of chapter 5, proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And verse 3 is one of the scariest verses in all the Scripture if we don't know the rest of the story. The verse says there was no one... That could open it. So if no one can open the book, then the plan can't be enacted. The power of God can't be unleashed and there's no vindication. What does it cause John to do, if you've read chapter 5? What does it cause John to do when he realizes there's no one worthy to open the book? He starts to weep. He starts to cry. Why? Because he knows there's no deliverance unless the book is opened. He knows there's no protection unless the book is unloosed. And a voice said, stop crying because one having been slain now stands and he is worthy to open the seals. You don't know why we gather on the first of the week and worship and praise God and and, and remember the death of Jesus and celebrate his return and think about all those things because the vindication of God's people was tied up in Revelation and Jesus came as the fulfillment of it all. And he now can open the seals, and so when chapter six begins, those seals begin to be opened. And really, there, there are seven of them. Did you know that in the book, six of them are opened in chapter six alone? Now wait a minute, if the whole book of Revelation is about the unfolding of these seals and six of them are unsealed in chapter six, why do we have so many chapters? Well, we hit some, some, some roadblocks and, and some questions and some difficulties. Just like chapter 7, there's an interlude that comes. Now, as chapter 6 opens, the first seal reveals Christ as conqueror. The second seal, he brings war with him, verses 3 and 4. In the third seal, he brings famine, verses 5 and 6. In the, in the fifth, fourth seal, he brings death, verses 7 and 8. And then when that, that fifth seal is opened, the blood of the righteous cry out, How long till you vindicate us? And then... And what so far in the chronology of it is the most terrifying seal of all, the sixth seal is broken, and terror and judgment and dread and destruction are all rehearsed beginning in chapter 6 and verse 12 to the end of chapter, or verse 17, leading the people watching the vision to say, if this is true, who can stand before the Lord? I believe that question at the end of chapter 6 is this. Will the church be crushed when Rome falls? You ever gotten in trouble because everybody else in the room was getting in trouble? For our young people here, if you've had siblings or if you've been in a classroom before and you weren't acting up, you weren't doing wrong, but the teacher just, just unleashed her wrath or dad unleashed his wrath on everybody because somebody in the room wasn't doing right. I had to, in in, in my days of preschool, write a 25-page paper because one student got smart with a teacher. It wasn't me, by the way. We all had to write it. We felt the wrath of of an instructor that never showed wrath because he was angry at one person. It happens. And so the question comes in at the end of chapter 6. So... What about the righteous? If you're going to pour out all your wrath on the land and on the sea and on this nation that we live in, on the government that's oppressing us, what's going to become of the church? Will we make it through? And so you have this interlude in chapter seven. Let's answer that question, the Lord says. Let's address that matter. I don't want my people to go around insecure. I don't want them worrying about what their future is. I don't want them to believe that as I, I crush Rome that I'm going to crush them. So let's stop and reveal that. And so chapter 7 breaks the storyline. Now I believe there's also another reason why it breaks the storyline. You see the seventh seal is going to start to be opened in chapter 8. And it has 14 subpoints in it. In the seven seals are the seven trumpets. In the seventh trumpet is the seven, seven bowls of wrath. So he's got 14 more things he's got to talk about as he breaks the seventh seal. If he's going to stop at any point and clarify some things, chapter 7 is probably a good place to do it. And so he does. He stops here and he says to us, wait a minute. What will become of the righteous? Notice again the verse. And I saw the four angels at the four corners of the earth and they were holding back the winds of judgment. Now, I guess deeper study and, and, and more of a classroom setting might would have to bear this out. But it would seem to me that the four winds represented here are the four creatures that are spoken of in the first four seals as they're opened. The destructive force of God. So it seems like that God had already answered this question before they ask it. We find chapter 7 in order here in the book, but really what God does in chapter 7 is, he did before the seals ever started to be opened. God's, God, hasn't God always had a way to redeem the righteous and save them from destruction? Does He need me to remind Him that they're righteous here so you know not want to be careful about how you pour out your judgment? No, God's already figured that out. God's already, God's already handled that. Here's how He handled it. He's going to wait to destroy Rome until something happens. He's holding back His wrath. Are there any other times in Scripture... When the Bible reveals to us that God withholds his wrath? And if so, what are the purposes for that? You know, we're not going to take the time to turn over there, but Peter mentions too. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he tells us that God's patience waited in the days of Noah. That he withheld the rain, he withheld the judgment, although he found, Genesis chapter 6, that the thoughts and imagination of man's heart was on evil continually, yet he waited. For 120 years, it would seem, before he poured out that rain, what was he waiting for? I believe he was waiting for two things. For the ark to be built and for Noah to preach. So that he could secure the saved and possibly even the lost before he sent judgment. He waited for the purpose of security. Then when you get over to 2 Peter chapter 3... Peter's going to use that same analogy and then he's going to apply it to us today because there were people scoffing and making fun of God saying he hasn't returned, he's not going to return. And Peter says actually in 2 Peter 3, 9, he's only waiting because he's patient. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Why is the Lord delayed? Why hasn't he brought down sin? Why is he allowing things to continue the way they are today? For the same exact reason he did in Noah's day for the purpose of securing the saved and possibly saving the lost. In the days of Noah, in our own days, and certainly according to Revelation chapter 7, in the days of the Roman Empire, there was a holding, a waiting of God. That's verse 1. Number 2, there was a rising. There was a rising. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. He says, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, or from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. I saw another angel rising from the, or coming from the rising of the sun from the east. You know, in ancient cultures, particularly in ancient Christian culture, it was believed that the east was the source of blessings. Think about the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.8 was planted in the east, the Bible says. According to Ezekiel 43 and verse 2, that God's glory would come out of the east. The rising of the sun takes place in the east, and the ancients believed that with each new day, the mercies and grace and majesty of God was new in those mornings. The east represented hope. So while these four angels stood with with wrath to unleash, there came another angel from the east, from the rising of the sun. He would have been bringing something beautiful and powerful and encouraging, not something of death and destruction, but something of hope and encouragement. He brought with him the blessings needed for this moment, and that blessing was the seal of God. And so number three, there was a sealing that took place in our chapter Continuing our reading in verse 3, here's what that angel said. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. This sealing, friends, is the primary reason for the holding and the rising. It's the heart of the chapter. And it is a passage of Scripture and a thought process that, that many struggle with in our world. There are all kinds of beliefs and concepts about this ceiling and about this number. Time will not permit us this morning to look at that 144,000. We'll make mention of that in our next lesson regarding this this particular chapter. But friends, this ceiling was the answer. It was the answer to what will become of the righteous. Will the church fall under the weight of Rome? Will will there be righteous swept up and carried away in the destruction of, of the enemy? The answer was resoundingly no. No. God's going to seal them. God's going to place His protective hand. That's why we've used the image today that we've used, in, in the, in, if you've noticed it, with the thunder and lightning above the hands, but the hands protecting that which is green and lush and growing. That's the picture of Revelation 7 of God and His people. There's going to be turmoil. Go back and read chapter 6. Read 12 through 17. Read about that terror. And then God said, but in the midst of that, I'm going to put a protective hand around my people. I'm going to make sure they don't fall. I'm going to make sure that they don't struggle. Now, when you look at a seal in Scripture, a seal denoted at least three things. Number one, a seal denoted ownership. The word is used in the Song of Solomon in chapter 8 and verse 6 when one spouse says to another, put me like a seal over your heart. That is... Make me yours. Let me know that I belong to you. Make me your possession. That wasn't seen as a a derogatory term in that time and in that age. It was a romantic thing. I want to be part of you. I want want you to, to, for, for me to belong to you and for you to belong to me, a seal denoted ownership. It also indicated genuineness. Remember in the book of Esther, when Haman had concocted the plan to get rid of the Jews. He brought his decree to Haman and, or to, to Ahasuerus and he signed it and he sealed it with the king's ring, chapter 3 and verse 12. This order is genuine. Haman could have written it himself and, and he maybe could have passed it off to some people that, that, he, that, he, that believed him, but if it didn't have the king's seal, it wasn't real or genuine. And so it was, it was a sign of genuineness. It was also a sign of protection particularly to protect the contents that were inside of it, inside of that seal. Remember what they did with the tomb of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27? They sealed it. Why? Because they didn't want the body getting out. They knew the stories. They knew the predictions. They knew what everybody had had, had been told about what what happened with Jesus, and they didn't want the body to go missing, so they sealed it to protect what was on the inside, ownership, genuineness, and protection. See, the unique thing about it is that most of the time Scripture, when something was sealed, it was a thing. Revelation 7 talks about people being sealed. But it's not the only time. It's not the only time. Look, Look with me. I hesitate to do this just for time's sake, but look back at the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 9. You can keep your place there in Revelation 7. We'll come back there in a moment. But in Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel 9 is, 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 the, is God sending executioners into the city with a destroying weapon, with, 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 with the sword of, 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 of vengeance. And, and what, he, what they're going to do is they're going to, to be God's instrument in destruction, a lot like the book of Revelation and these, these angels with this, these destructive winds. But the Bible says in chapter 9 and verse 4 that the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even to the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sign, groan over the abominations which are being committed in the midst. That is, look for those who are not caught up in the ways of the world. Look for those who are distraught about the, the, the plight that everything that's going on. And I want you to mark them. I want you to seal them and then... When you do so, verse 5, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay all men, old, young, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark. Why? Because sealing him in their foreheads gave them protection. I believe that's the imagery of Revelation 7, don't you think? God's going to send this destruction, He's going to send this, this, this judgment. Those that he takes the time to seal, they're not going to be harmed. They're not going to be hurt. So the question is, what is the seal? What is the seal? I'd like to just say, I don't know, and let's move on. But I won't say that. Okay. Some suggest it's the Holy Spirit. And the Bible uses Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, Ephesians 4, and verse 30, 2 Corinthians 122 that the Holy Spirit's been given to the Christian as a pledge, as a seal, literally the word is used, a seal of our inheritance. Some believe that it's baptism That that moment we are sealed, cemented together with Christ, that we're baptized into His death, that we become part of Him, Galatians 3.27. And therefore it's that sign, that seal, that we are His people. Friends, here's my problem with either one of those. I don't have a doctrinal issue with either thought. But I have a contextual one with that being the seal of this, this section. Because these people are already Christians. The 144,000 that are mentioned are those that have already been washed, that have already been rescued, that are already part of the church. That's why they're asking the question, right? What's going to happen to us? We've obeyed you. We've followed you. What's going to happen to us? He's going to take those people who've been saved and he's going to seal them. I believe the answer is found in the placement of the seal. He's going to seal them in their foreheads. You Remember back in the Old Testament... In Deuteronomy chapter 6, when they're told to take these words and, and learn them, teach them to their children. Remember what Deuteronomy 6, 8 says to do with those promises of God? That you take them and you bind them as frontlets on your forehead, between your eyes. Those were people already in covenant relationship with God. Those were people who already had right to, to, to access to the temple and the sacrifice to the tabernacle and the sacrifices later the temple. So what was it about the promises of God that sealed them? I'm convinced it was the knowledge of God's provision and protection. And God was waiting so His people could be more sure. God was delaying and holding back the judgment so His people could be more convinced that this was not going to hurt them. They weren't going to struggle through this. Some believe that it was physical protection. That maybe Christians didn't get hurt in the fall of Rome. We could, I suppose, argue that off camera if you wanted to look at it. The Friends, every day that he waited to, to bring Rome down, Christians suffered, didn't they? And, and if Rome doesn't fall for 400 years, 300 years beyond the writing of the book of Revelation, then if he waited to protect them, then they left, were left unprotected until that time. I believe it had more to do with their mental and emotional and spiritual preparation for what was coming. So what happened from the time that this promise was made until Rome finally fell? Well, Revelation was completed. The books were gathered. The the manuscripts were collected and verified to be true. It was decided what would go in the canon. People had an opportunity to study the Bible and and, and to know it, and they got a daily dose of of things like this. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Daily they were reminded that for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him unto that day that daily they were able to take scripture and to know, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love by which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence as to the full assurance of hope unto the end, Hebrews 6, 10 and 11. Daily they were reminded, therefore let us not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are not seen are seen temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And they got to read those and they got to study those and they got to hear those preached. And so when Rome began to suffer and when the foundations of that nation began to crumble, the church knew we will make it out. Because God had taken time to seal his people. We are an indestructible people together. We cannot lose as the Lord's church. Friends, that's the message of the book. That's the message of scripture. Why is God waiting? Why isn't he answering? Why hasn't he, why hasn't he sent vindication? Why is he allowing wickedness to continue? Because I don't know every answer, but I know one so that you and I can daily be reminded of how good he is and how much he will protect us, that even if things get bad and even if this country falls and even if this world comes to an end, that nothing, not one single thing can separate us from the love of God, that we cannot lose. The question this morning is, does that attitude reflect the way that we live? Or do we live defeated, angry, hurt, unsure, waiting for the next tragedy, for the next pandemic, for the next problem, for the next argument? But it's not the way God intended us to live. Even in the midst of persecution, he told the people, I'll seal you, I'll protect you, and I'll exalt you. Because I'm convinced, the same promise applies to us this morning. Now, there is a fourth thing that was done in that chapter. It's the natural byproduct of living a sealed life. We'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. This morning, I would just ask you, are you a Christian? Have you been sealed of God in baptism? Do you walk after the Spirit? If you don't, those things are, are not part of your life, change that this morning. Obedience to Jesus involves faith in his claim of deity. It involves repentance of the sins that have violated his law. Confession of that faith before witnesses, not only a one-time confession, but a lifelong confession as we live our lives, but especially if you will, at the waters of baptism. And then, based upon that confession, submission to his will in baptism that your sins might be washed away. If that's the life that you are not living and would like to, we encourage you to take part of that. If you're a Christian not living a life of victory, there's a good chance people have seen it. Perhaps even it's been a reflection on your Heavenly Father. Don't leave without making that right. Whatever your need is, Jesus has the answer. He is the answer, and he will provide assurance and forgiveness if you will come to him while we stand and sing.